0: Well, we're finishing off John 17 this week, looking at the last section of Jesus' prayer as he was approaching the cross. This week, we're looking at verses 20 to 26, which you'll find in your orders of service, where we hear Jesus pray for his church. So let's read that together. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you. may be in them, and I in them." In the world of Formula One, there's been one team that has been the major player in recent years. The Mercedes team has dominated the sport for the last decade. They're who Lewis Hamilton drives for, and their team has won the last seven championships in a row, with Lewis winning six of those. And they keep on winning, not just because they've got the best driver in their car, or because they've got the most money to spend, but because everyone in their team, from the bottom up, is united in service of their goal. If you were to ask any member of the Mercedes F1 team what they're doing, from Lewis Hamilton in the driver's seat, to the guys doing the insanely quick tire changes at the pit stops, to the boffins analyzing the aerodynamics of the rear wing and tire degradation, to those responsible for the admin of moving a whole team from country to country every fortnight, if you ask any of them what you're doing, you'll get the same answer from every person, every time. We're winning the world championship. They are singularly focused on their goal, even if the part they play in it not perceived to be overly important or deserving of much glory. And we might not have a championship to fight for, but our goal in everything we do is to glorify Jesus by bringing more and more people in to glorify him. And one of the key ways we do that is by glorifying him in the way we live in the church, giving people a picture of the gospel in real life, a walking, talking, collective vision of what God is doing in the world. And that will bring even more glory by drawing people into the church so that as we preach the gospel in word and as we adorn it in action, Jesus is using us to call people to himself who will glorify him forever. In our passage this afternoon, Jesus is praying for his church, for you, for me, and all the other Christians in the world. He knows that his disciples, while proclaiming the gospel in a hostile world that we saw last week, they're going to bear much fruit and see many brought into Christ's kingdom through their work. And he's praying that his mission of uniting a people to himself would continue and be gloriously completed, displayed in the uniting of his people here now on earth. Everything Jesus says in this prayer is impacted by the fact that he's approaching the cross on his path to glory. So Jesus is leaving his disciples to carry on his ministry. He wants them to preach the gospel to all and to unite the church in that mission. And we see four aspects of that unity in our passage today. So we're going to go through each of them, seeing the grounding, the nature, the impact, and the goal of real Christian unity. So firstly, the grounding of real Christian unity. And here we see that the basis for the unity we share as Christians is the apostolic witness. Jesus was sending his disciples out into the world on mission, proclaiming that Jesus is Lord, And it's that gospel that is the grounding for our united front as christians verse 20. i do not ask for these only as in the disciples only with them at the time but also for those who will believe me believe in me through their word there's no other way to belong to jesus than faith in him through hearing and responding to the apostolic word as jesus ascended to reign with his father He passed on the gospel to his disciples. They were custodians of the message, entrusted to keep on proclaiming and preaching the gospel. And for the first Christians, it was the disciples themselves who they'd heard the gospel through. But of course, they died. And instead of getting them in the flesh, we have the same truth, the apostolic truth, written in the Bible, inspired by the Holy Spirit himself, kept and guarded through the generations for us. We don't have a 2030-year-old Paul among us, although that would be fun. We have the Bible, the apostolic word. Faith comes from that pattern of hearing the word and receiving it by trusting in Christ, confessing him as Lord and obeying it in your day-to-day life. And it's everyone within that category that we are united to, everyone who is committed to Christ in a relationship of faith, And that's a unity which is both narrow and wide. It's narrow in that he's praying for unity exclusively in those who have trusted the apostles' words, exclusively those who have bowed the knee to Christ as their Lord. And because of this, there are a list of things that Christian unity is not based on. It's not based on a group of people calling themselves a church or meeting inside of a church building, but is exclusively grounded in union with Jesus through believing the gospel. It's not only found in organizational unity either, like in ecumenical groups, which seek to draw together all forms of people who use the term Christian or church and often find the lowest common denominator they, can, they, they share in that they can believe in together. These groups proclaim unity by diluting the gospel because they think that anything with the word Christian in it must be united with as though that's the most important thing in the world, with the actual gospel being secondary to it. So they're revealing themselves to people who do not confess Christ as Lord because they're willing to sacrifice the gospel for a good headline. Their so-called unity is a facade with real unbelief behind it. Those we seek to be united with are those who believe in the gospel and have life in Christ as a result of that. That's how it's narrow but that unity is also wide and that that unity is to be seen in everyone who has heard and received the apostolic message so christians from every race every country every social class every age every stage every walk of life every tribe tongue and nation who jesus is describing is that person sitting in the room in front of you right now or that neighbor you have that goes to the baptist church or that person in Zambia or Peru who believes the gospel, or that person who you find really difficult to get on with, the one who really pushes your buttons, that they confess Christ as Lord and belong to him. Those are the people who we are to seek unity with. And we can lose sight of that very easily in the humdrum of normal Christian life. And we as Christians are frustratingly creative at finding ways in which we can divide what has been joined together. Um, In your own head, I'd like you to go through this checklist with me and ponder all the ways in which we've been responsible for dividing the church in our own hearts. So in which of these ways have you put another Christian on a lesser footing than you? Here we go the style of music that Christians sing along with, how people dress at church, what mode of baptism they practice, how people's kids act during the service, how people understand the gifts of the Spirit, or how you take communion. I very much doubt that any of us could honestly say we've not mentally created a second class of Christian because of how we've responded to these matters. We'll say something like, Yeah, I know they're Christians, but they think or do this. Now I should say it does it does matter what you think about these things, but mature Christians know to put these issues where they belong, as a secondary part of the gospel of Christ, a secondary part of the apostolic witness. Because there is a unity which is far more deep and profound than church government or liturgical practice, or musical style, or dress code. Um, I love weddings. We've been blessed in the Toronto to have quite a few of them over the summer. We had another one yesterday, and I'm not quite bored of them yet. It's, it's always such a pleasure to see couples commit to each other and to the Lord in service of him together. And there's one point of the service where once the vows have been made, the minister will join the new husband and wife's hands and he'll hold them together and he says, what God has joined together, let not man put asunder. And in case you're not up to date with archaic vocabulary, he's saying what God has joined together, let not man separate. And the whole congregation of family and friends, they stand with them, physically standing with them to show that they're committed to ensuring that that bond is not broken we rightly take that very seriously. The union of marriage should be very jealously guarded, and it's the same kind of seriousness we should treat our church unity with, the seriousness of a marriage. That's how seriously the Bible puts it anyway. Each one of us belongs to Jesus, so we ought to cherish that and cherish the fundamental things that have been revealed to us, rather than the secondary issues Which we hold on to so dearly, and which we identify with, and which we feel like they make us what we are. Your union with Christ defines you far more as a person than anything. Your union with Christ defines you far more as a person than your music preference, than your preferred mode of baptism, or any other matter. First and foremost, you are a Christian called to belong to Jesus before you're anything else. So, Christian unity is grounded in the apostolic word, the gospel itself. Anyone who trusts in Christ and seeks to obey him, that is someone that you share something fundamental with, since you are both united to Christ in him together. How should we put that unity then, grounded in the gospel, into practice in real life, Well, that's what we see as we look at the nature of real Christian unity. What does Jesus want his church to look like? Well, here we see that unity that we are to express in our Christian life is mirroring the perfect unity shared by the Father and the Son. Jesus uses the image of family, and that is what we are to strive for in our churches. Jesus prays for us in verse 21, that they may all be one. Just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us. And in 22 to 3, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one. You as a Christian are invited and commanded to share in the love of God. We are welcomed into the Trinity through union with Christ. And because of that, Jesus prays that we would live up to that calling, that we would reflect the same love that perfectly exists in the Godhead forever. Jesus, in his human nature, depended on the Father for all things and obediently loved him with every breath, even to the cost of his own life. And that's what we are to mirror in our churches, that perfect submissive love for the father that jesus displayed as he obediently loved a people who didn't deserve it and died a death he didn't deserve for the sake of others but jesus knows that we aren't going to achieve that perfectly now he knows what we're like that's why he prays that we would become perfectly one in verse 23 because he knows that we as sinful creatures will always be in a state of becoming more united On this side of death, we'll never have arrived at having achieved perfect unity and be able to give ourselves a pat on the back and a round of applause for doing ever so well. As a church which proclaims that gospel and confesses Christ as Lord, we need to recognize the fundamental truth that we are all in the Son, that all of us are united to him. And we might see that as more of a personal matter, like we have an individual relationship with Jesus, and there's an element of truth to that. But having faith and being united to Christ is a deeply corporate experience. We as Christians believe in Jesus and are joined to him in faith. And there's only the one Jesus, so we're all joined to him together as one in faith. He's not split into parts with the people who like this kind of music joined with that Jesus and the people who have deacons and bishops over with that Jesus and the guys who have read Bavinck over with the very Reformed Jesus over here. There's only one of him and we are all joined to him. It is a corporate, altogether experience. And to ensure that that togetherness is maintained, our actions are to be that of christ-like sacrifice there's a clue to that in verse 23 jesus says the glory you have given me i have given to them his glory is the glory of the cross the glory of shame the glory of dying to yourself of putting your comfort to your preferences your wants your needs below that of others for the glory of god in the sake of the mission of god doing that may cause you to feel like you've lost arguments, or it might make you look like you're weak. But whatever you perceive to have lost yourself, if you, in the middle of an argument or disunity in the church, have have won that person and preserved the unity, the bond of the church, the unity of Christ's bride, then you are bringing your Father in heaven glory because you're living like him. Well, that's how we can discourage disunity. But on the other side of the coin, there are many things we can do to proactively encourage this unity. I know we've all been hermits for over a year now, but has one of the victims of COVID been your attitude towards hospitality? For almost a year, having that couple you know around for Tikka Masala has been an illegal offense. And it's hard to get back into the swing of things. I'm finding that Anyway. But having people around for a meal is always going to be one of the best ways to show love to someone, to give them time, to bring them into your home, eat together, and to share your life with them. So let me ask you, and I should give you a warning, please don't make eye contact with anyone in the room right now. Who from this church would you be least likely to invite over to lunch? I'm going to try not to feel self-conscious at how many people are looking at me right now. (laughs) And I'd like to remind you that the person or people you're thinking of is someone you are intimately joined to in Christ. By you showing love to them, you're mirroring the truth that you're united together in Christ. Do not deny that truth with your actions. That's just disobedience. Disobedience. But instead, show that God's love is in you. And as you as a church look more and more like a family doing that, the more it will be reflecting the love that the Father and the Son share in, and that we share in through Christ. If we do that well, well, what church that would be to be a part of? And what glory that would bring to God? So what does that glory do today then? That's what we see in our next point, which is the impact of real Christian unity. Jesus makes clear that as his church is united together, because they are united to him, they will have a large evangelistic impact on the world around them. Look at verse 21 with me. So they are to be united so that the world may believe that you have sent me. And then verse 23, Jesus prays that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you have sent me and loved them, even as you loved me. Jesus wants his church to live as a united family, mirroring the relationship they share in with the Father and the Son, so that it paints a picture to outsiders of just what God is doing in the world. God is uniting a people to himself through his Son to be in a real relationship with him, reigning together in eternity, So surely the church ought to look at least in part like that today. It's worth making very clear that obviously this still includes the verbal proclamation of the gospel. We all have faith through hearing the apostle's word, but the united witness of a church preaches the message too. It becomes a living embodiment of the message that God is uniting himself with men and women who have trusted in his Son. As we live alongside one another, loving each other and displaying the love that the Father has for the Son, we are given the best platform possible to go on and share the gospel that has transformed us from a group of sinners, miserable sinners, into a group of people who love one another, preaching in both word and action. And there's an old TV show called Through the Keyhole, which was presented by Lloyd Grossman, the Australian guy who makes pretty average pasta sauce. I'm sure most of you will remember that. In his show, you were allowed inside the house of a celebrity, going through the keyhole and having a look around. You'd see everything, the furniture, the photos on the wall, the wardrobe bigger than your living room, the garden the size of a football pitch. And the more you saw, the more you would build up a picture of what that person is like and who they are. And once you'd seen round, you'd be able to have a good stab, a guess, of who lives in that house. And one of the wonderful things we learn in this passage is that God's glory, his glory, is made known in you, his people, as they unite together. So when Christians gather together as the church, God's presence is made known and proclaimed to the world. And if people who aren't Christians are going to find out what God is like, well, they're going to go through the keyhole, aren't they? They're going to come into your church, take a look around, and what they think about God is going to be shaped by all of us. I'd like you to picture one of your friends or neighbors who you've had opportunities to share the gospel with. Maybe you've got someone in particular in mind right now, someone you've been plugging away at and praying for for quite some time. Well, if you were to invite that person to church and they said yes, and then they were to come here next Sunday, and avoid the great temptation to go into the Gregs downstairs instead, if they did come, what would they see? Will they be met with the love of God himself as soon as they walk in the door, sensing that there is something unusual about this place? Or is it just like everywhere else in the world, with factions and divisions and smiley faces that very quickly fade away, Are they very warmly welcomed at the door, but then finding out about disagreements the week after? Or are they told to give so and so a wide berth because they're a bit difficult, with a quick temper? If outsiders see us acting like that, then the gospel loses credibility because it doesn't seem to affect our lives. If we are not living the gospel shaped life as a church family, then why would our neighbours believe the gospel we preach and claim to love if it seems to have no transforming power over us as people? The Lord Jesus, as he was approaching the cross, prayed that our churches would not be like that, that his people who belonged to him wouldn't act like that at all. He prayed instead that we would be becoming ever more perfect in our unity now so that the watching world sees the love of God displayed in a bunch of normal folk who live in North Edinburgh, who are united to the living God and live like him. Faithful living gives the gospel credibility to outsiders. So are you loving one another? Are you going out of your way to display the love of God to the people God has called you to brotherhood with? Are you forgiving those who offend you? Are you making amends when you've wronged your brother or sister in Christ? Are you seeking to love your church family even when it hurts the most and when it makes you uncomfortable? Are you putting the good of your church family and the good of the gospel witness of this church above yourself and your opinions and your own ego? The truth of the gospel must be both declared and demonstrated If we are to win the world around us, for in us, God's love is made known and he is glorified in that. Well, finally, we'll see everything that this points to, the goal of real Christian unity. Here, Jesus looks forward to the goal, to us living in glory with him forever. And we see what we should be aiming towards as we look onwards to his mission being completed. Jesus only asks the Father for two things in this small section. He asks that those who belong to him would be united and also that they would be coming to be with him in glory. And they're not disconnected parts of the prayer. They are linked because one is a sign of the other. Union with each other on earth is a sign of the union we will share with Christ in the new creation when we see him in all his glory. Look at verse 24 with me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you've given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. What you experience in your church week by week, it doesn't only proclaim something to the outsider, but it proclaims something to the insider too. As we meet together, we ought to be a little foretaste of what's to come and be encouraging one another to keep going towards that glorious goal of living with Christ, with him, in glory forever. Sunday by Sunday, as you learn to to graciously love, forgive, and show patience with your brothers and sisters, with those you share union in Christ with, you will have a little picture of what's to come. Since Christ lives in us, we do experience his presence as we all mirror the family likeness together. And what a witness that is to one another, and what a foretaste for us all to look forward to. So how do you feel about church right now? You know, when you're you're getting ready to come out on a Sunday afternoon, how do you feel and think about it? Do you look forward to coming to church, to meeting with your brothers and sisters, Or are you secretly dreading having to face that person? Or are you thinking, let's just get through this as you try and cram the kids into the car? If we are trusting what Jesus reveals about his church, then even in the midst of living among real disagreements in the church family, difficult people we find hard to get on with and frustrations with any number of issues, we should be far more passionate about continuing to meet together to worship him. Because as we meet together, we see God's grand plan for the entire universe coming together. We, by the grace of God, are welcomed into the family that is setting the agenda for all eternity. And we get to see in imperfect, fallen form, what shape eternity is going to take. Jesus is praying for us, for his church, that we may be in glory with him forever. That's the goal so that those who belong to Jesus would be worshipping him and dwelling with him in his presence in glory forever. So your church, when it's at its absolute best, is pointing forwards to what we will be experiencing in eternity with Jesus in his presence. But even at its best, it's still just, just a shadow, a faint glimmer of all that Christ has in store for those who love him. Let's keep pressing on towards that together. I hope that the image of all Christians living together with Christ in his glory forever, harmoniously and perfectly, encourages you to love your brother and sister today. So as we close, what has Jesus been doing with this prayer? Well, Jesus has been focused on completing his mission of calling a people to himself. As he was approaching the cross, as he was readying himself for the pain and trauma he was about to endure, he was doing so for the glorious achievement of winning his bride, his church, for himself. But he was saying all this with the disciples in earshot, hearing every word of what was being said. So, what did he want for them? What did Jesus want to achieve in the disciples through his prayer? How did he want to change them as a result of saying a hearty amen to all this? Well, I think that what Jesus was wanting to do in this prayer was to pull back the curtain, to allow his disciples a glimpse into the inner life of the Trinity, the Holy of Holies, and to be wonderfully reassured by it, to be warmly encouraged by it, it's not something we get a look into often in the Bible. And when we do here in John 17, we see a perfectly united Father, Son, and Spirit working together as one for this purpose of calling a people to himself, drawing those people in, and bringing them to glory, completing the mission. As the disciples stepped out into a world which hated them, how reassuring would that have been? To know that Jesus himself, theirs and our great high priest, who was seated at the right hand of the Father, was interceding for them in their mission to the world. They were to know that Jesus, who was given all authority over all things, was on their side, still working for his glory, to bring those who belong to him to himself. Through the work of Christ, the witness of the disciples, and the oneness of the church, Jesus would be winning people for himself and preparing them for glory. And not only that, but the disciples and all Christians would get to experience that glory now in part in the foretaste of heaven we share in week week in, week out in our local church. In this time between Christ's ascension and his return, while he's not here in bodily form, isn't that an encouragement for us too? That as we all navigate a world which doesn't welcome us, and as we try to hold out the gospel to it, and as we try to display the gospel in our churches by loving our church family, isn't that helping us just to keep going? That as we seek to glorify God, reveal him to the world, and bring those who belong to him to faith in the Son, doesn't knowing that Jesus was praying for exactly this Give us some food to keep going on the journey. That's what Jesus was doing in this, and that's what he's still doing today. Christ's mission will be completed. He will call a people to himself. He will be ultimately glorified, and we get to share with him in that. We, one day, will finally be in his presence. And by God's grace, we'll get a small glimpse of that in our normal, unimpressive-looking local church, as each of us in everything we do here lives for him and his glory and nothing else. What a joy, and what an assurance for us to keep pressing on together towards that goal. Let's pray together as we close. Our Heavenly Father, we praise you for who you are, that you as Father, Son, and Spirit are perfectly and beautifully united with one another. Please help us in our fallen nature and in the mess of sin to display that unity in our church life, to love one another, to serve one another, to bear with and show patience to one another, proclaiming to the world that you are our Lord and bringing you all the glory. We thank you, Father, for including such sinners as us in your plans for eternity. And please help us to yearn to be with you in glory forever. Please keep us persevering and keep us faithful to you forever.